Welcome to Thrive Lathrop Podcast. Here at our church, we believe that everyone can thrive. Make sure to subscribe to our channel and enjoy this life-changing message. Praise the Lord. God is good. You remember. And all the time, he is good. It is so good to be with you today. Um, Gosh, it feels like forever. It's only been like six and a half weeks. But it feels longer than that since uh, I have been here. And um, for those of you, does anyone here not know me? Why aren't you inviting people? I think everybody here knows me. It is, uh, it's been about, about a little over a month since uh, I started a new chapter uh, in my own ministry life. And um, in just a few days, my family will be joining me up in Seattle. <clears throat> um, I, and so um, it is such a wonderful thing to see God continuing to bless Thrive Church in Lathrop, the greatest church, the greatest church in California. Tied for great church in the whole world. Now that I help in another place too. Um, and so, and so it, is, it is just so cool to just keep in touch with people, see everybody, the place filled and new people coming. And um, the best is ahead for, for Thrive. And so it's great to be here. I want to apologize for not being in my usual spot. Um, I'm usually out. Those front doors are in the lobby greeting people. I'm actually not feeling well. Um, I'm sick. And nowadays you got to tell, you know, it's, it's that disclaimer. It's not Rona. <laughs> I took a test so that I could tell you it's not COVID. Um, it's, I don't know what it is, um, sinus infection, head cold, scarlet fever, <laughs> whatever. I don't know what it is, but it's not no bueno. So I'm not hugging on anybody today. I'm hiding in the back so I don't get you sick. But in September, my family and I will be back. Can I get a hug in September? All right. All right, 17 of you. All right, I'll hug I'm just going to jump on everyone else's neck, hug you. Anyways, um, but it is good to be able to be here and to be able to share um, our story. I I thank Pastor Chris for uh, having me here and um, so excited to to meet Psalm. I'm not meeting her this week because I'm sick, but um, so excited for, for that family and, um, and the, the beautiful addition, thank God she looks like her mother. <sighs> beautiful Psalm. And, um, and so when Pastor Chris served as youth pastor here, he did this series as a youth pastor. And I believe that it's just his heart. Uh, and it's really neat because he understands that God's <clears throat> redemptive work is lived out in us that God is the, the God of creation that, that, that some people might believe is there but not interested in us. The, the agnostic who might say, well, maybe he's out there, but he's not involved. Um, or a deist who thinks, well, there's God, but he doesn't really pay attention. He's busy doing other things. But, but we, don't, we know that our God is a personal God. 
a God who is involved in our lives and that his work is realized in us. That the word of God is active and it impacts the way that you and I should think and act and react and get mad and, and do family and spend money and, and, and the words that we speak. It should impact how we live our lives. That the evidence of the gospel is in us. That we are the light of the world as his face shines through you. Do you understand that? It's not just a, 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 um, an acknowledgement that, yeah, I believe in God. No, it's that I believe in a God that actually lives in me and is helping me be nice to you. Can I get a witness? Because how many know there's some people in your life, it's a miracle that you don't kill them. That God is at work in us, um, through us. That that's, that that's what makes you like a city set on a hill whose light cannot be extinguished. And so as we uh, heard Pastor Matt last week and as you'll hear others share their stories, um, I'll share just a little bit of mine with you too. Um, maybe nothing new, but maybe still something that can encourage you today. So if you would do me the, the uh, favor of standing for the reading of God's word, it's one text today. Let me set it up for you um, before we actually put it up there. It's Paul writing to the church uh, of Galatia and uh, the church, someone say the church. So the church is like only 30 years old. It's, it's like, it has been around for 2000 years like ours, but it's just kind of still figuring stuff out and they're having meetings at different times, to try to work out doctrine and theology and what does it mean to be a Christian? And, and, and so Paul's writing because it's a church that, that is still dealing with something and because there are some people who have a hard time there are people who have a hard time giving up tradition. There, there are people who have a hard time giving up on, okay. There, there are people who have a hard time giving up on what they can do rather than what God can do. And so there, there are some folks that, that are trying to still have Christians be circumcised like a good Jew would. And, and it's the, it, they're, they're called Judaizers. And, and, and so... Paul just goes on and on in many of his letters. In Acts, you see this great meeting about it and where, where Paul's just stubborn. He's like, no, you can't add anything. Like you're not saved by any work. You'll never be good enough. To the one who says, I'm good, I'll go to heaven. You'll never be good enough to go to heaven. Well, I'm not as bad as my neighbor he ain't going either unless he gets Jesus. Like, don't matter. And stop comparing yourself. If you run a race with a five-year-old, don't mean you're fast. I'm not as bad as a murderer. Okay. Don't mean you're going to heaven. No one's good enough. And Paul says, stop, stop, stop getting all wrapped up in what you have to do. Okay. And then he ends with this, this text, this, this verse. Galatians 6, would you read it with me? Because it's not long to read it with me. From now on, let no one cause me trouble for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. Lord, we pray 
that you would mark us. Our lives are your canvas. We're, our days are your journal. Write your story. May we see you in the pages. May we learn to love when you write it, not us. I pray that for anyone in a dark place today, you would shine your light. You will never leave them or forsake them. There is not a place so dark you can't see them. Thank you. Alpha and Omega. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So your story matters. And I entitled my short testimony today, Every Mark a Part of the Story. Every Mark a Part. I don't have, um, I don't have a testimony like maybe some of you in that I ever, ever got lost in the world. I was blessed with a, a great family. My, mom, my mom's actually in the back getting ready to preach a better sermon than I am. She's preaching in the bilingual. You can stick around if you want. Um, and my dad's here. Can you give my dad a hand and my mom? Yes. I, you know, I think there's something. The only person I was ever really afraid of was my dad. I was way more afraid of him than anyone at school. So you better believe I wasn't holding someone else's weed. <laughs> I remember this kid like in seventh grade, Baka, Baka, hold, hold this. It's like a big old bag of weed. And I saw my dad's face. I'm like, heck no, bro, go ahead and shoot me. <laughs> Raised in a, in a, by a, with a wonderful family, great parents, great sister, and in a good church. So that I was taught early that, that God is real and God is love and that sin is real and that sin kills I was taught those two things really well. God is real and God is love. Sin is real and sin will kill. And because of that, early getting a taste of the truth and I, I was never, I can honestly say this, I'm, I'm almost 50, I know I look 47. <laughs> I'm almost 50. Um, I've never been enamored with the world. Like there was never anything about a loud, dark, noisy room with a bunch of gyrating bodies and spike punch that was attractive to me. <laughs> Nothing about it. I, I, I grew up, you know, we, the church that we served in was in a barrio, a rough neighborhood. There was nothing ever exciting about like looking hard and bad and carrying a gun and beating people up. There was nothing about that. But that was uh, because I had a family um, and because I was introduced to the truth. If you are young, you don't have to fall in love with the world. There was nothing about the world that was more exciting than what I learned in the pages of scripture, in the presence of God, or in the joy of good Christian friends. There was nothing out there that could replace this. Now, it doesn't mean that I didn't, you know, 
have my problems. Can I get a witness? Just because you're a church kid don't mean that you're a good one. There was one Sunday I remember I, I, I was sitting there and, you know, back then old school. Anyone grew up old school church? Like right now you're on vacation, it feels like, right? You go to church on Sunday once, not Sunday school at 9.45 and then church at 10.30 or 11 and then back. Remember Sunday night church? Woo, Sunday night church. Six o'clock till whenever Jesus said. And Jesus didn't have a watch, so according to whoever was in charge. So we're there all the time, like all night. It was, it, yeah. Um, but, but um, I grew up, I grew up in, in church and um, knowing, knowing the truth and the value of, of, again, friends who knew the difference between right and wrong and good and evil. Um, I remember one, one Sunday, I was probably about six and I don't know how I escaped kids church, but I did. I knew all the ways to escape and I sneaked to the back. You know how we took communion today? Well, back then they had the grape juice and the crackers in the church kitchen. And I went and I drank all the grape juice. I was so blessed. I ate all the crackers and a deacon found me. I was with his son. The pastor's kids and the deacon's kids, man, we were in trouble. And they, my dad gave me a lecture. Remember that one? You do, all right. And then he introduced me to his uh, belt later, you know. <laughs> drank all the grape juice. They couldn't have communion that Sunday because I drank it all. Then another time, I, I don't know where the kids pastor, they, they, we didn't have a good kids pastor like we have now. Either that or I was sneaky like a ninja. But I sneaked out and I found a fire extinguisher and I started spraying that puppy everywhere. Me and the deacon's kid. Do you remember that one? You remember that one too? Cause just because you're a church kid don't mean you're a good kid, you know. But, um, but I can tell you that throughout my you know, youth, childhood and youth, I, I, I had bouts with fits of rage and I had, I had all, I had other stuff, but I just didn't, I didn't need the world. And I thank God for my parents and that he reached me young. So I don't have scars of addiction and, and, and I've never had a DUI and, you know, I didn't get a girl pregnant in high school I didn't, didn't, no, that's not my story. But, but can I tell you that I was just as lost as anybody else in need of a savior. And I, I, I want you to understand something here that every one of us in our walk of faith gets to a point where there's a crisis of faith. I believe that it's a type of spiritual rite of passage that there's a point in your spiritual journey, in your pilgrimage to heaven, that there's a point where there's an impasse. There's a gut-wrenching, earth-moving, mountains-falling moment where you are face-to-face -face with a decision. And the only thing complicated about the decision 
is the price, wondering the price you'll pay to make it. It's not what the right decision is. Because most of the time, friend, you, you and I can complicate our decisions when they're not that complicated. We, make, we try to make it seem complicated, but they're really not. When we know what right is and what wrong is. But the price to be paid is weighed. And you realize that the potential cost of making this choice, the right choice, is a price you've never paid and you're not sure you're willing to pay it. People get to this point. It could be in a marriage. It could be in a job. It could be, in, uh, it, it's almost uh, always connected in some way to your integrity. You get to a point where you either say yes to God and ask him to help you walk on water or you retreat back to the familiar. It's a place you've been before that wasn't good enough, but you go back because it feels familiar, it feels safe, and it's not asking that of you. These people aren't asking what God's asking of you. This relationship isn't asking what that relationship is asking of you. But inevitably, as a pastor, I've seen this many, many times, for the true believer, the person who really does want to please God, it isn't, it isn't that they're not a Christian anymore. Don't, don't fool yourself. It's that there's a breakthrough moment that the Father wants to lead us through. We're not willing yet to engage. And so we, there's a settling, a mediocrity of our faith. There's a settling, a compromise. But the one who cares and is serious and is wanting to be devoted, they, they, they get their people people back together, they start to make amends because that cost them something too. It costs you something to take steps back. There are people in your life that are wondering where you went. There, there are people that live with you that are wondering why aren't you as, why aren't you as strong as you were here? And so we make amends and we say that we're sorry and we get back up and we make our way and maybe we hope we'll never have to get there again, but I wanna tell you that the Father will lead you back to a similar place, to pay a similar cost, because that is what is necessary, not for him to be pleased with you, not for him to know where your faith is, but so that you know where your faith is. The proving of your faith, the testing of your faith is not to know if he knows you know the answer, because he already knows everything. It's so that you and I might know that we know the answer. I'm not feeling great, so I hope that made sense. I'm medicated. It's not Vicodin like it was 10 years ago. Never mind, we won't go there. All right. But I'm, I'm medicated. He'll take you to the same place or a similar one, well, you'll have to pay the same cost or a similar one. Because at the end of the day, friend, at the end of the day, your best place is in total surrender. So I found myself, a church kid, going through life, you know, having, you know, the worst thing in the world was missing a shot in a basketball game or, you know, getting a D in a test or whatever. And then, um, but, but, but God had to get me to a place like that too, 
God had to get me to a place like that too. A place that, that, this is a place where your faith is your faith, not your grandma's faith or your parents' faith or your uh, Thrive Group leader's faith. No, this is your faith. You following me? So I'm in high school and freshman year. I, 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 I played basketball in high school. That was my game. I was pretty good. I was very good. I could have gone pro, but I had this thing. Just kidding. I wasn't any taller than I am now. And I remember as a freshman running and playing like I had for years and, and feeling my heart kind of uh, flutter a little bit, yeah, race a little bit. And, and so uh, kind of ignored it. You're, I'm a kid, I'm you know, 13 or whatever. And, but it kept kind of nagging. I told my parents about it. And anyone, everyone feels their heart skip a beat every now and then, right? Yep, so they're like, yeah, I don't know. Let's just keep, keep an eye on it. So it kept happening. So I, I think it was like my sophomore year, it kept happening and um, they went to get me checked and they found that I had a heart murmur. Um, they, I had a heart murmur, but, um, but, but nothing else and seemed okay. So kept, kept playing. <clears throat> and then um, my junior year in high school, playing for a, uh, our high school in, in Anaheim, California and I'm out there running and playing and my heart starts to race. And it's done this before, done this for a few years. The doctor said it was okay. So I'm, I'm out there playing and, um, and I come out and my heart's just still racing and racing and racing and racing. And I'm having a hard time catching my breath this time. And um, the, the program I played for was a very good program that we had actually a, a trainer, uh, a trainer on the bench who had been a trainer for the Los Angeles Rams and the, 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 the Clippers and he's our trainer. And I told him, I said, hey, I'm not feeling good. And so he took my pulse and it, was, it, it stayed over 220 beats a minute the entire time of the game, just sitting there throughout halftime, he's taking my pulse. And the coach kept trying to put, put me in and the trainer would say, he can't go in, he's not going in. Until at the very end, the last buzzer, I was so frustrated. The last buzzer went off and my heart started to beat normal. And my heart wouldn't like decelerate, like, like, you know, slowly get, you know, normal. It would go from racing to just boom, 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 normal. So the trainer said, hey, you know, you can't play until you get a doctor's clearance. Because this was right around the same time that um, the, one of the best college players in the country died on the court. Hank Gathers died of an arrhythmic episode playing college basketball. And so it was sort of on the front of everybody's mind. So uh, I go, actually, this is my senior year. I, I go to the emergency that night. And they, they call in a, a cardiologist. And the cardi this is kind of cool. The cardiologist comes in, looks at my name, looks at me. He says, hey, didn't I see you playing on TV today? Because our games were televised locally. I go, yeah, that's me. <laughs> I'm going pro. If you, so my shoulder, you know. So he goes, you know what? We did ran some tests. He says, we can tell you have an arrhythmia. Um, um, let's put this thing on you you can walk around with. It's like, it, it's like a thing you 
with leads to your heart. And we're gonna watch you for about, you know, I don't know, a week and see if we can capture the episode on. And so I did that and it came back and they're like, well, you have an arrhythmia, but have you ever passed out? No. Uh, it, does it go away? Usually, I go usually pretty quick. This is the first time it lasted a long time. Like, you okay. Okay, well, I'll let you play, but if you feel anything, you got to let your trainer know. I said, okay. So made it through the end of that season. One night I went out jogging, and as I came back home and sat on the curb outside my house, my heart started to race again. Only this time, it was very different. And I knew it was different. I'd felt this for four or five years. I knew this was very, very different. And um, I tried to do some exercises that the doctor had given me to get it to kind of, because an arrhythmia, I don't know if you know, but electricity makes your heart beat. Um, your body actually creates an electrical current. And there are these proper pathways for these current to go through. And and they have what's called a node that captures it and then sends it so that your heart is a muscle and it, it squeezes it. Like when you get shocked, you know how you cramp up? So it kind of makes your heart squeeze, it pumps the blood, then it releases it. And then it does it again, shocks it, and then lets it go, shocks it, and then lets it go. And, um, and so um, an arrhythmia means something's not, not capturing it and your heart's beating too fast. The problem is it can beat so fast that it doesn't actually beat, it just quivers. So it's not pumping blood and that's when you die. And so I felt like my heart was racing faster than it had been racing and I'm trying to like make it stop and I'm using cold water and I'm, I'm starting to get dizzy. And about 45 minutes later, I tell my mom, I said, hey mom, I really don't feel good. I, don't, I, can't, I can't catch my breath. This, this is different. I felt the enemy there also. It wasn't just physical this time, this time. This time, it was spiritual too. I had just dedicated my life to ministry at that point. I didn't know that I was gonna be a pastor, but I had decided I was gonna go to Bible college. So I was very spiritually in tune and I knew that this was the enemy also attacking me. So I told my mom and she got nervous because I'd never told her, I'd never said, take me to the hospital because of my heart. And so she, we jumped in the car and we're racing and, and as we're going, I'm trying to catch my breath. I'm trying to catch my breath. I'm feeling like these waves crashing over me. My heart's racing super fast. And I really felt like my life was leaving. And I mustered all the strength that I could. My mom was talking to me and I couldn't respond. And, but I mustered all the strength I could to whisper one verse. And it, it was the verse that came to my mind. And I whispered it, just barely. And I said, greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. And when I just let that verse out, I felt, and I'm not one for stuff like this, I felt physically someone hit me in the chest and my heart began to beat normal. I'll have to fast forward here, but make a long story shorter. I get, I, I go in, they, they check me out. They, they set me up with a specialist. I'm sitting in the, the, the best cardio, the finest cardiologist in Orange County. If you, if you can imagine Orange County, very affluent. He's, I'm in his private practice. Our insurance was great. So I'm sitting at his desk, this real big desk, and he's in his suit and this, everything's beautiful. 
And he looks at me and he says, Eric, you're at the point of sudden death. You can die at any moment. We need to operate on you. He says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to send you to San Diego, UC San Diego Medical Center, where there's a specialist who's really at the cutting edge of this type of stuff. He said, I want to shadow her and learn from her what she does. Because she's really good. So we said, well, yeah, whatever we got to do, this is all in a big rush. I, we, they take us like maybe four days later to San Diego. Um, they, do me, they do a test on me. They got my heart over 300 beats a minute. I had two extra pathways where there was a circuit was, thing was happening. Their, their doctors were surprised I was alive. So I'm in, the, in, the, in the, my room the night before. My parents go to their hotel. I'm there eating, eating uh, hospital food while they ate tacos. And there was this older gentleman in the same room with me. He was waiting a, for a heart transplant. And so I, we talked and I was like, I wasn't scared at all about what I was going through. There was such a grace on my life. I'm talking to him. And I'm telling him about Jesus and he starts crying and I lead him to Jesus. And he says, Eric, I just accepted Christ in my heart. I said, yes, you did. He said, will he go in the new heart I get? I said, I don't think so. No, just kidding. I didn't say that. I didn't say that. I said, I think you'll have no problem finding the new place. You know, I wasn't very good at theology back then. So I think you'll find it. That night, my aunt had a dream. They were up, they went down to San Diego to be with my parents and walk them through it. And my aunt had a dream of the book of life. And she woke up and she went to my mom. She said, hey, Marty, is Eric's name Lee? Because they only call me Eric. And my mom's like, yeah, he's actually Lee Eric Baca. And she said, oh, because I saw the book of life and I saw Lee's name, Reverend Lee Baca. Then I saw Eric's name, but it was Reverend Lee Eric Baca. Now, I was 17. I wasn't a reverend yet, but, she, but I was called to ministry. So she saw, I believe that God gave her this vision to assure my parents that I was going to make it. I was at least going to make it through Bible college. <laughs> at least get there. That morning, um, they had already prepared me. I was, I was already drugged up, um, probably on Vicodin or something stronger. And... Um, they had let my parents into the pre-op room and, and there were people tending to me and there was people t- attending, but there was one person that kind of stood out all alone, really, although there was maybe eight or nine people in the room. It was one, who, one lady who looked particularly young with long black hair and un, un, untied. And, and so uh, she looked at my parents and my parents went to her and said, can we pray with my son before you take him. And she said, yes, of course. And they asked her, are you the doctor that's going to be operating on him? And she said, yep. And I'm going to take good care of him. And she said, we're going to pray for you too. And so they, they prayed for me and, and, um, and left. And the surgery was eight hours long. And I was supposed to be in the hospital for like 10 days. But can I tell you that the Lord raised me up in four days and on the fourth day, they got ready to send me home. I woke up on the heart and lung machine, the, the intubation, that's terrible, you know. And, but, but the Lord, there's more things that happened, but the Lord got me through it. 
and uh, on the last day, um, we're ready to go. And, and my parents and I also, I wanted to meet the doctor. I wanted to thank her for what she'd done and um, hadn't seen her in the four days. Maybe I was out when she came, checked on me, or maybe she, was, she didn't do that. But um, we asked, can we see her? Well, they brought the doctor in and, and she's a tall lady with short, like sandy blonde hair in her maybe 50s and tall and different from this young, shorter, long black haired doctor we met or my parents met in the pre-op room. And so my parent, my mom was like shocked. And she says, you're not the doctor who did the surgery. And I'm like, mom, stop. And the lady, the doctor's like, well, yes, I am. I'm the one who did it. And my mom said, you're not the one, the doctor we met. And she says, well, who, who, describe who you're talking about. So I described her as young and kind of short with long black hair. And she says, I, I remember I was laying there. She says, I don't know who was in there, but there's no one on my team. It's a very specialized team. No one on my team fits that description. No one like that should have been there. I'm going to find out who was in that room. And I said, and make sure she doesn't get your check. Because I worked at Carl's Jr. and I know she made more than me. She'd want that check. We believe that that was an angel of the Lord that God sent to minister. You know, it was years later, we had some insurance thing. And that surgeon remembered me and remembered our story. Because she never could figure out who it was that was in the room. I'm gonna go super fast, are you still with me? I'm gonna super fast because this is the thing. The heart surgery was not my crossroads moment. That was not my test. That wasn't it. God had given me a grace, I wasn't scared, I wasn't nervous. I'm like, gonna cut me? Yep, go for it. Gonna take my heart in your hand? Yep, all right. Don't lose it. Do a good job. I wasn't nervous. That wasn't it. It was after. You'd think that after all these signs and wonders and miraculous recoveries and God's intervention from even before they found out what I had, because I should have died probably when I was a freshman, if not sooner, that all of that would have set me up to be this like super, super Christian, but it really didn't. Because immediately... When I got home, very interestingly enough, I felt God's presence, uh, well, I can't say theologically correct, he left because he didn't ever leave, but he, he lifted it from my ability to feel. It's like he went black on me, he went dark on me. I couldn't, I couldn't feel him like I did when I used to pray. And I always hurting, my chest hurt, my lungs hurt. I lost like 30 pounds and I couldn't walk from here to the lobby without catching my breath. Now I was weak, vulnerable. We moved from Southern California to Northern California that summer, left all my friends, left all of my spiritual formation partners, left them, went. I was gonna go to Baba College, but because of my surgery, I took a year at junior college and first, first class I had was this teacher who was a, for, was a pastor's kid, a former Christian, now believed in there was no God. And I'm being just, just bombarded on all sides with, with my family there, but no other support system. 
And when I would praise, I felt nothing. When I would pray, I felt nothing. When I'd go to church, I'd feel nothing. Everyone else felt something. The room was full of God's spirit, God's presence. People were getting saved and healed and baptized. There was, church was, they were praising the paint off the walls. I felt nothing. You ever been there? I, I was there. Seven, eight months of nothing. Seven, eight months of recovering. Seven, eight months of, of evolution indoctrination. Seven, eight months of loneliness. Seven, eight months of pain. I couldn't laugh without crying because it hurt so much. I couldn't didn't want to sneeze because it hurt so bad. Seven, eight months where God went silent. That was my crossroads. And so one, one, one moment in the middle of the night on my knees by the side of my bed in a city I still didn't know with friends not yet made and I cry in God, show yourself, show yourself, show yourself. And I remember looking to my right, finally, finally looking to my right and putting my hand out there and saying, God, I can't feel you, but I believe you're here. I know you're here, God. I can't feel you, but I know you're here. And then I looked to my left and I put my arm out there. I said, God, I can't feel you, but I know you're here. And I choose to follow you no matter what. If you never speak to me again, if you never let me feel your presence again, God, I will follow you no matter what. Can I tell you that that, that, was the pivotal moment of my life. That was it. Because friend, if you're in that time of silence, he will speak again. His presence will fall like rain again. I know it's been a long drought. He gonna rain on you again. He's gonna speak to you as you lay your head down like he used to. Cause he hasn't gone nowhere. But this is your moment to say, God, you're worth more than what you do for me. I love you for who you are, not for what you do. You're not my servant, I am yours. You're not at my beck and call, I am at yours. You're my everything. And it's because of that moment alone, on my knees, in the dark, with tears falling from my face that I'm here today. It's why I'll never cheat on my wife. It's why, it's why I will grow old. It's why I will grow old proclaiming Christ as King. It's why I've been sick since and still trust Him. It's why COVID couldn't steal my joy. It's why leading Thrive through all of its journey when we were like nomads going about the wilderness without a place to lay our head like the Son of God. If you were there, you know, church in a box. Why we weren't ever scared, because he met me. I'd made a pledge. He was with me and he was never gonna leave me. He's with you. You've got a story. You've got a story with marks on it. I, would you stand with me? You've got a story of redemption. He takes, 
He takes the worst that man has thrown at you and he renews it. He takes your worst failures and he makes them into wisdom. Your weakness is only a place for God to show his power. And friend, maybe you're at a precipice. Maybe you're at a crossroads and you needed someone to tell you, don't go back because you're sincere. You're devoted. You love the Lord, which means you'll just have to get back here again. Trust him. Trust him. Your story matters because he's writing it. If you write your own story, it'll fall into the wind of history. But if he writes it, it will echo through your children, your children's children, through your coworkers and your neighbors and your cousins, and even your enemies will give God glory. Thank you again for tuning into our podcast. For more info, please visit our website at thrivelathrop.com. Have an amazing rest of your week.